Glimpses of God and Reality How to Integrate Psychedelic Experiences of Sacredness Part 1. Why We Have Sacred Experiences with Psychedelics Hi, my name is Steve. I'll be your host for this podcast. The podcast is about psychedelic experiences that were profoundly sacred. We'll be looking at how to successfully integrate those types of experiences into everyday life, and our goal is to make everyday life as fulfilling and as balanced as possible. We'll be looking at the current scientific research about why we have sacred experiences with psychedelics. These researchers are quick to say that their findings today are still primitive, and that their research is still in its early days. Nevertheless, their findings are already providing useful insights into what's happening in psychedelic experiences of sacredness. These researchers have been studying how our brains filter information, and at how sacred experiences happen when psychedelics disrupt that filtering. We will also be looking at the experiences of many people who've been integrating psychedelic experiences now for many decades. And we'll try to learn from their experience how to recognize those same sacred experiences in everyday life. And finally, we'll be looking at how having a spiritual experience does not in itself make you a spiritual person. We'll be looking at how becoming a spiritual person is about continually doing your work and what you end up doing with your life, not about some inner experience you should be having or what you think you might know. The purpose of this podcast is to provide information for people who have taken psychedelics and who are now trying to integrate those experiences. However, psychedelics are illegal and this podcast does not promote their use. Further, psychedelics are very powerful substances that can harm you if used without the guidance of a trained professional. People have many different types of experiences with psychedelics. In this podcast, we won't be looking at all those experiences, but rather we will focus on experiences that felt profoundly sacred and how to integrate those types of experiences into everyday life. Since 2000, researchers at Johns Hopkins University have been studying the effects of psilocybin. In those studies, study participants were given psilocybin and then guided through their session by a trained therapist. Afterwards, participants were given a questionnaire about what they had experienced. The majority of people in those studies said that they had had profoundly sacred experiences. How people chose to describe their experiences, however, varied. Some said that they felt free from the limitations of their personal self, or that their personal self dissolved. Some said that they felt a unity or oneness with everything, or with something that felt greater than their personal self. Others became more aware of a living presence in all things. Some saw the world as being absolutely perfect. And some said that the experience of freedom from their personal self allowed them to see that ultimate reality is eternal or infinite, and that ultimate reality is beyond time and space.
and some said that they experienced a sense of fundamental well-being or a complete acceptance of themselves. After their psilocybin session at Johns Hopkins, many study participants said that their experience simply could not be adequately described with words. Most said that words cannot do justice to what they experienced, and that communicating their experiences in words to others is difficult, if not impossible. And after their session, many remained convinced that what they saw was the ultimate reality of everything and they remained convinced that they had gained knowledge at an intuitive level that was absolutely true. Remember these last two points, because they are central to integrating psychedelic experiences of sacredness. First, the profound sacredness cannot be described, contained, or conveyed with words. And second, the profound sacredness appeared to be absolutely true at an intuitive level. Yet psychedelic journeys always end, and their profoundly sacred experiences fade, and you find yourself back in the everyday world, which can feel much less sacred and much less true. In this podcast, we'll be looking at how the sacredness experienced with psychedelics and the sacredness of everyday life are the same sacredness being experienced at different levels of intensity. This podcast was put together by innerpeacefellowship.org. Our group has been exploring how to integrate psychedelic experiences since the 1960s. This podcast is based in part on what we've learned and the mistakes we've made. After taking psychedelics in the 1960s, most of our group studied with Eastern holy men and women. Some of us lived with saints from the East. Others chose to live alone in the silence and stillness of high remote mountains. Our group met in the 1970s when we came together to form a community of several thousand to explore inner peace through meditation. Today, most of us have been practicing meditation now for over 40 years. Some of us had careers and raised families while meditating two to four hours every day. Others have lived in reclusion and still meditate for six hours every day. We're friends and neighbors who have been sharing one another's successes and mistakes for a lifetime, and our community continues to explore, to learn, and to grow. Our philosophy is about how to gain self-knowledge while remaining empowered. Self-knowledge comes from the fact that you know better than anyone what increases or decreases your inner peace that you know better than anyone what brings you closer to what's sacred, and that you know better than anyone what is actually working in your life. To gain self-knowledge, you must learn to trust yourself, to trust your experiences, and to trust your instincts and intuition. And the self-knowledge you gain through learning to trust yourself is what then enables you to retain your power and not become disempowered and controlled by others. Our experience has been that sacredness, inner peace, and goodness increase as you become more aware of what's obvious, not through searching for anything that's lost or hidden. The actual story of life on earth is so astonishing 
that sacredness increases as you become more aware of how life has evolved. Inner peace increases through training yourself to have more silence and stillness. And goodness increases through following your instincts about how to get along with others. For more details about our approach, visit our website, innerpeacefellowship.org. Psychedelics allow us to look deep inside ourselves at things we cannot usually see. To understand what's happening with that, it's helpful to understand how the intelligence of life works, both within ourself and in every living thing. Life on Earth came into existence about four billion years ago. The first form of life was a single cell, and all life on Earth today, ourselves included, was reproduced from that first single cell form of life. That first single cell form of life contained DNA. DNA is in all living things, and it contains the instructions for how life develops, functions, grows, and reproduces itself. DNA has been reproducing itself over and over and over for almost 4 billion years. As you listen to this podcast, your DNA is busy reproducing and rebuilding every part of your body. You're able to relax and listen to this podcast because what's causing your heart to beat and your DNA to reproduce itself is happening automatically without you doing anything. And the astonishing thing is that DNA learns. The way DNA learns is that sometimes mistakes happen when DNA reproduces itself. When those mistakes happen, the result is that the DNA that gets reproduced is different. Those different DNA then compete with their family members for survival. And if the different DNA wins that struggle, then they become a new form of life. That is how DNA learns, through mistakes and trial and error. It was through such mistakes and trial and error that all life on Earth arose from that first single-cell form of life four billion years ago. In this podcast, Those instructions of life contained in DNA will be called the intelligence of life, and sometimes the intelligence of nature, or simply human nature. That intelligence of life comes hardwired in every living thing on earth, including you and me, and it provides the instructions, the actual coding, for how life develops, functions, grows, and reproduces. There are about 8 million different species of life on Earth today. The intelligence in the DNA of each of those species has developed differently, and so the intelligence in each species is somewhat different. For example, black bears can smell food 18 miles away, and eagles can see clearly about 8 times further than humans. Each year, the barred-tailed gotwit flies non-stop from the Arctic Circle to Christchurch, New Zealand, a 7,000-mile journey over open ocean without resting. And when they start arriving, the churches there all ring their bells to welcome them home. When it's time for salmon to spawn, they swim thousands of miles through the ocean and then hundreds of miles up rivers to the one tributary where they were born and there they lay their eggs, 
For humans to successfully travel such distances requires sophisticated navigational equipment that provides the intelligence that comes instinctively in the DNA of birds and fish. Bears and eagles and birds and fish, as well as many other forms of life on earth, have forms of intelligence that humans do not have. What that tells us is that human intelligence is simply not aware of everything around us. Humans are not aware of all the smells that a bear can smell. We're not aware of all the things that an eagle can see. And we're not aware of what's needed to navigate open ocean with our instincts only. We simply are not aware of much of the information that is around us, information that is vital to the survival of other forms of life. And the reason we're not aware of everything around us is that over millions and millions of years, human DNA has learned to filter out much of the information around us that is not necessary for our survival. But now imagine if suddenly you could smell everything that a bear smells, that you could see everything that an eagle sees, and that you could sense every bit of information around us that the eight million other species do sense. Imagine if suddenly you did become aware of all the other information around us that normally we're not aware of. Your senses would be so overwhelmed by all that additional information that you could not survive. Luckily, however, our DNA has learned how to filter out information around us that's not necessary for our survival. And our DNA has learned how to allow into our awareness only information that is necessary for our survival. And that is why we are not overwhelmed and why we do survive. The filter in us that filters all that information around us and lets into our awareness only what is necessary for our survival is called our default mode network. Our default mode network was first identified in 2001 by researchers at Washington University. Our default mode network is located in our brain. It manages all the information in the different parts of our brain, much like the head of a large corporation coordinates and manages the entire corporation. What researchers have found is that our default mode network is most active when we're thinking deeply or when we're lost in thoughts. That point is very important to integrating psychedelic experiences, so I'll repeat it. Our default mode network is most active when we're thinking deeply or when we're lost in thoughts. Now, psychedelic experiences can be quite raucous. So you might think that activity in the default mode network would increase when on psychedelics, but that's not what happens. What happens on psychedelics is that electrical activity and blood flow in the default mode network drop off greatly, and the default mode network becomes quiet. Now remember the Johns Hopkins questionnaire we looked at earlier. In that questionnaire, people who had sacred experiences on psychedelics often said that their personal self had dissolved. Well, when researchers at Imperial College studied people on psychedelics, they found that the biggest drop-offs in default mode network activity happened when people said 
their personal self had dissolved. Their personal self dissolved when their default mode network became most quiet. That suggested to the researchers that our default mode network could be the actual physical counterpart of our personal self. So what exactly is the personal self that dissolves on psychedelics? In our experience, our personal self is that character in our thoughts who talks about what could happen next or what has happened in the past. Strangely, however, when our personal self dissolves on psychedelics, the experience of being alive seems more intense, not less intense. So how can that be? Our default mode network is now quiet and less active. So why are we experiencing such increased intensity? One researcher has suggested the answer here is that while the boss is away, the kids do play. Researchers at Imperial College found that when the default mode network shuts down on psychedelics, other parts of the brain that suppress emotions, memories, wishes, and fears become more active. And when the default mode network shuts down on psychedelics, parts of our brain that don't ordinarily communicate directly with one another start talking with one another, often with bizarre results. So then, what about when you're not on psychedelics? Can anything quiet your default mode network in everyday life? Can anything quiet your personal self from chattering away inside your head so much? Luckily, the answer is yes. Researchers at Yale University found that the default mode network becomes less active when people meditate. And in people who meditate, they also found that their default mode network is less active during daily activity compared with people who do not meditate. This finding suggests that people who meditate are having fewer thoughts during daily activity compared with people who do not meditate. It suggests that for meditators, their personal self diminishes and the chattering character in their head chatters less, and sometimes not at all. Our staff has meditated for over 40 years on average, and that finding fits with our experience. During everyday life, the chatter of our personal self has diminished, and sometimes that chatter goes away completely. And while those experiences in everyday life are more subtle and less intense than on psychedelics, they are quite pleasant. This concludes part one of our podcast. We've looked at only some of the information we offer for integrating psychedelic experiences of sacredness. We offer much more information about this on our website, innerpeacefellowship.org including free instructions for learning how to meditate. Thanks. Next in our podcast is a conversation with my friend Michael. Michael and I have been neighbors since the early 1980s when we each moved to our small Midwestern farm town here in the U.S. to help start a community of several thousand meditators. Michael started exploring psychedelics in the early 1960s. Here, he talks about how the sacredness he experienced with psychedelics profoundly changed his life, and how he then integrated those experiences over many decades. 
The sacredness experienced with psychedelics can be experienced in everyday life. However, the sacredness experienced in everyday life is not as intense or as flashy as it is on psychedelics. Directly experiencing sacredness in everyday life has been called enlightenment, awakening, the peace that passeth all understanding. However, those terms often cause confusion, and that confusion can actually become a barrier to directly experiencing sacredness in everyday life. Researchers at Sophia University have studied hundreds of people who are considered enlightened and awakened. Their study identified two main characteristics that those people shared. First was that they had a sense of fundamental well-being. Second was that the amount of thoughts they once had had noticeably diminished. It seems that contentment and happiness in everyday life are pretty good measures of your connection with sacredness. Not <laughs> American sports. <laughs> no, I've done when I've done the. Um, oh, what do you what you call it? The script. You yeah, know, yeah. I've you know I've really wanted to think yeah. a lot about what I was going to say and yeah. whatnot. So yeah, I've yeah. done that, and yeah, you know, yeah, but yeah. I just thought, no, we just chat. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, you 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 can have if if you were trying to do some interview to get at something, you could have a whole bunch of pointed questions that you wanted to ask and things like that. But those yeah. are usually for political interviews. Yeah, yeah. Right. <clears throat> well, I thought I'd, I'd ask you about your early days in California. All right. And, uh, you know, the the podcast is about uh, integrating psychedelic experiences, but it focuses on psychedelic experiences of okay. sacredness. Okay. Because it seems like there's a whole world of experiences people have. Yes. And an attempt just to focus on any one of those would be a job. And so, you know, the idea was to yeah. focus was, it on sacredness. In, in the Kool-Aid acid test, I think it was Tom Wolfe wrote this wonderful book about that whole era. He pointed out there were two schools in psychedelic use. Right. One was the Leary and Albert school which was meditative and, you know, make yourself a controlled set and, 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 and try to have as, as inward an experience as possible. And the other was Ken Kesey's idea, which you go for the Kool-Aid acid test. You get on a bus, you go out and party, right? Right. And so those were the two kind of, uh, kind of uh, diametrically different uh, uh, kind of philosophies of taking acid that, was there, that were started up in those days. There was. Um, can I? Can I go? I want to go change my glass. I got the wrong glasses on. All right. I got the glasses I use for. For. Yeah. Well, talk a little bit about that. Talk about the. Well, I could talk about how I got into this. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm a I'm 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 a born skeptic. Uh huh. In fact, the earliest memory in my life is going into my my parents' bedroom on Christmas morning and I'm reaching up and holding on to the banist to the to the doorknob to stable my stabilize myself, right? And I'm and they're sitting on their beds and over in the window there's this teddy bear sitting in the open window. This is Southern California, it's Christmas, you know, it's not cold. There's no snow. Yeah, and they and they're saying, Santa Claus brought you this teddy bear. And I remember very clearly uh 
this is my oldest memory that I have saying, that's not true. They're playing this little game, right? <laughs> they want me to agree with them, right? And, 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 and if I don't, it'll hurt their feelings, you know? And so I'll play along with this. But I knew darn well there was no Santa Claus. And that was a big, you know, kind of a little game, a little lie that people were telling to make things for some reason. I yeah, didn't, I didn't yeah. really understand why. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they so were that, doing it. So that's my earliest, my earliest uh, uh, memory in my life. So I'm kind of born a skeptic. And, and I got interested in, as a kid, in science fiction and science. And so it seemed to me that, that scientific inquiry, the scientific method, was the was the best way of of understanding truth, and I was always interested in wanting to know what the truth was, what the real, what's real, what's the story, and so it seemed like science had the best handle on that. And these um, religious traditions all were just a set of beliefs that people had. You had to have faith in them, and it didn't seem to me that that's that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to have the direct knowledge, and the best way to get that was science. Then when I went to um, went into college, I was you know I started out as a physics major, but I had a friend there, and so <clears throat> he said you know I was saying you know religion is all these religious traditions are just bullshit you know I I I just can't you know, there's nothing to it, and he said wait a minute here let me give you this book and he gave me uh, you know Huxley's book right the perennial philosophy and he said here's a couple other books like this and read about it. So suddenly I got introduced to this idea that there was a whole mystical tradition of direct experience that I'd never heard of before. I'd never been exposed to that before. And so I said, well, that's that's another matter because instead of just taking something on faith, these folks are claiming that they have direct personal real experience of this. And so I say, so I, I'm, I don't want to reject that as craziness because they sound pretty real to me. And then you can also find that it's just not one person, but throughout the whole of human culture, there's this, this, this tradition of people having a direct experience of reality. So that was, that was my, uh, my basic idea was that I wanted to know directly what the truth was. And so when in the early 60s, I had a friend who came by, he was a college friend, and and came by and brought me an ampule of, of, of LSD from Sandoz Laboratory, the, the real genuine stuff. I don't know how he got it, but he had one. And he just left it with us, right, uh, with Diane and I and things. And so I said, I would be, I'd like to see what happens with that. So I tried it and uh, uh, had a very... Um, uh, suddenly I had an expanded ability for my senses, you know, were much more sensitive. I could see more colors. I, it was just the, the, my, my, my mind expanded, my ability to think. It was, it was any, it wasn't anything radical, you know, any radical change, but that was uh, interesting. So, um, I said, well, maybe that's a, maybe that's something that could help provide this direct experience. So I um, tried to find some other place to get LSD, and there wasn't any before. It wasn't illegal, it wasn't illegal, but nobody had it, you know. 
So a, a friend of mine who was interested in the same kind of thing said, um, well, maybe we should make it ourselves. So we, we, um, we went into uh, the big library in, uh, in Los Angeles, the big public library in downtown, and because they have the whole U.S. patent system records there. And we looked up the, the patent for making LSD, starting with lysergic acid. And so we got this patent, and we followed the instructions. It was quite elaborate. You had to produce, had to mix two chemicals at minus, in an inert atmosphere at minus 20 degrees centigrade and hold them there, hold it there for half an hour and things like that. So, but we figured out how to do that. And, and we did it. So, and this was before, there was nothing, it wasn't a, a, a an illegal drug at that time. And so we had a bunch of LSD. To, to, so, so I had all the, all the, all the LSD that I, need, more than I needed, right? <laughs> For anything. So, uh, uh, that began that, this little adventure with psychedelics. And, uh, I, uh, at that time, Alpert and Leary had just begun this organization called IFIF, the International Foundation for Internal Freedom, it was called. And we joined it, right? We joined up. We were one of the founding members of that organization, right? <laughs> it was a, uh, and we thought this was a very interesting thing because it seems like it could produce a, um, uh, an expanded awareness of consciousness. And, and I thought that was, that was very interesting, and but um, as time went on, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't any. I was the 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 Alpert, uh, you know, and Leary version. I was interested in introspection. I didn't want to go out and party. I thought that would be nuts, actually. To, you took LSD. I wanted to to go within and have some some deep introspection. So so that was my my uh, style, but. And I, and I I had some very nice experiences and went along, but it just seemed to me that it wasn't the whole the whole you know the idea when LSD first started out was number one why don't we put it up in the water supply was the idea right yeah. and then as I as I kind of observed people who were involved in this psychedelic movement I saw the the, the problems people you know jumping out of windows and and uh, and having bad experiences and and there's no way of you know it didn't it, it it didn't seem quite like it was working out so blissfully as you know one would think. The first idea of you know mm-hmm. <laughs> the revolution was just not it didn't seem to be working out. So but and then I had this one experience which absolutely changed my entire life. Uh, I had a direct ex- I can't. The problem with these experiences is that you can't describe them. You can only describe them in poor metaphors. But this experience was one where my experience of myself um, settled down and expanded so that it became everything the whole universe. It was the foundation of the universe, that my, what I was internally was the foundation of the universe. And my, my, 
my my local um, identity was still there, but it was like another level had had opened up that, that I hadn't seen before. That was that was there be- behind everything, and it was um, it was my own consciousness. I, that, that's not quite the. There's no way to describe it. Consciousness is not the is not a good enough word. There are there is no word good enough to describe it, except it had some characteristics, and the characteristics were infinite happiness, infinite bliss, but more happiness than than is possible to imagine, more satisfaction than is possible to imagine. And I I had this direct um, sense that if you could if you could if you could open up your awareness to that anytime you wanted, or even live that way. Your life would be so. Um, you would not have any desire to harm anybody. You wouldn't be motivated by sex, by drugs, by power, by money. None of that stuff would be. That stuff would be completely trivial and unimportant because you already had complete. You know, you had the 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 deepest level of satisfaction that the human nervous system can experience. This bliss and, and a lot of traditions call it that but bliss is not a strong enough word it's just there's no word for it that works you know that's the that's the really difficult thing except that you can describe some things about it like the in buddhism you know the sanskrit root for for buddha is bud which means awake it means awakening and so this experience is like you've you've been asleep and you've awakened and you've 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 never been able to you know you've woken up from some dream or you're having a sense of of experience that you never had before that's so much larger and 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 everything you've had before was some kind of a very small vision of what life is and what what the human nervous system is like and what you can do and um, and that. That vision, that that the other characteristic of this is that it is so real. The idea that it could have been some hallucination or some imaginary experience is just if you if anybody who's ever had that will know that's that's just not the case. That's just there's no possibility, you know, because it's the it's the most awake powerful, real experience you've ever had in your life. And so uh, there's no doubting it. There's no, you can, and and um, uh, the other thing about it that I saw that I was everyone. You know, it wasn't that there, you know, in the, in the, um, the golden rule is, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, this is the foundation of that. You do unto others as because you they are you, right? <laughs> you are them. Why would you want to harm yourself, right? Right? You want to help other people. You know, what do you want to make everything? You want to be uh, uh, and help them in the sense that the whole universe is helping everybody. The whole universe is supporting all life and everything that's happening in it. So you kind of see that, and and and. Um, the the other question you know that people would say about this well 
you know, how do you know this wasn't just some crazy thing that happened to you? This is some kind of a, an illusion. Well, I think I think it's William James or someone who makes this point. He says that the way you can tell the difference between a psychotic experience and and one of these these experiences of of, of enlightenment is how it affects your life. So that the the enlightenment experience means that your life changes, that you you start to become a person who's more like the description of the of of people in the scriptures who are saints. You move in that direction immediately without any without having to do anything. It's not a struggle, it's just part of your nature automatically. So because of that. And so that and that happened in, in my life. That very next day I went down and rented the biggest trailer I could get, backed it up to my house, and took all the junk and all the stuff. I completely cleaned out my life, right? And kept just the stuff that was essential and, and, and beautiful and wonderful and threw away all the junk and started over, right? On it. So I, I could kind of, kind of redesign my entire life and started over. So that was the, and I was never ever, I, I've never been able to get over that experience, in a sense. So it, it, uh, uh, and the other thing that happened in that experience is that the, these ideas would come to me. There's, there, in the Zen tradition, there's a, there's some, one of these sutras where the Zen master says, Everybody has a good and learned friend within them, inside them. And you could, you can learn, listen to that good and learned friend. And so it was kind of like that. It's like, it wasn't some, it was from my own deepest self, um, good ideas or wisdom were flowing. And one of the things that it said was, um, you know, this experience that you're having, is you're having it because you introduced this chemical to your nervous system. This is a very powerful thing. It's shown you what the human nervous system is capable of being, but there's no way of knowing what it's doing to the biochemistry of your body. It's experimental. It has no tradition behind it. There's, 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 you know, there's no long history of it. And, and if you take, you keep taking this, you might be interfering with the, with that delicate biochemistry which supports that experience. So if you want to get there and live there, you've got to find something else to do. You have to find some way to culture your nervous system, to gradually make the, the, the nervous system naturally be able to produce that experience. Because one of the other things about this experience was that it was seemed absolutely normal and natural. What was next? Well, so then, so then what was next was I, I said, okay, well, I need to find some tradition. You know, I, I, I stopped taking, I said, I don't want to take any more drugs <laughs> because I could see also one of my visions was I could see this whole drug thing as a, as a, as the future of it sort of contracting down instead of expanding up. You'd yeah. gotten the, the, the best bit. I'd gotten what I was looking for. Yeah. Now I want to know how to live that. Yeah. That, yeah how to yeah. make that happen. How to, how to sustain that. How to make that. What's the way to get there? 
So, and, and, uh, so it turned out I found out that there was a Rinzai Zen master who had been coming to the town I lived in. So And I studied with that, that guy for about a year and a half. But I can say, I could say that the meditation didn't do much for me. The Rinzai Zen meditation is kind of uh, pretty hardcore. They teach you to sit in a certain position, uh, but they give you no instruction on what to do. You just, and, and when asked, uh, what should we do? The Roshi says, I could tell you, but you later on, you'd hate me for it. So we did that for, for a while, and then I, and the, but, but that wasn't working for me. I mean, it just didn't seem to, it was making much progress. So then, um, we decided we were going to change our lives and move out of Southern California, out of the smog, and move up, out to the country and do something we, we, uh, we'd read about called homesteading, where you go and try to live closer to nature and, and raise your own, you know, garden and raise your own vegetables and, 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 you know, and, and just live a, a more, a life which is more connected with nature. Because that seemed to be the one of the most, um, helpful things to do, to be in, to be immersed in nature. So we did that. And then we, uh, we, uh, there was a, that was in 66. And then, and, and then, um, we heard that a Roshi, I mean, a, 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 a guru, uh, was coming to town and we went and heard Maharishi speak and started TM and, and that, that seemed to work better. That immediately when I started doing the TM program, then uh, there was this tension that I had, which wouldn't go away with the Zen program, just completely, you know, relaxed. So I found it uh, a very effective technique and got involved in it and I'm still doing it. been doing it ever since. Um, um, I'm not much of a true believer in, the, in, in any organization. Well, you know, we're, we're 50 years out now. Yeah. From those days. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing is that, you know, you and I have been friends for quite a while now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're amongst a community of people that have yeah. gone a lot of different directions yeah. with this. Yeah. Um, but it's nice that th- this town, I like it because it's a community of saints. There's people here who, who have, there's a deep underlying, um, Appreciation and desire for truth, for spiritual truth and awakening. What I find interesting in that is that there's also a multitude of expressions. Yeah. So that this person whose personality is such and such has come through the last 30, 40, 50 years yeah. and they are expressing it in this right, manner. And right, right. You and I can have a conversation like yeah. this for hours because yeah. we're using many of the same expressions. Yes, yes. But nobody's expressing it the same as the next guy. We kind of all started using the Eastern yeah. lingo, yeah. if you will. Yeah. But it... You know, it goes back to what you're saying, that, that whatever that experience was that you had, yeah. if you try to describe it with words, it's confounding. This level of reality, there's no good, it's beyond words and even conception. You know, it's, it comes before thought, right? Thought, thought is something that 
arises arises from it, not something that can encapsulate it. Right. So any any metaphor that you have about this reality is just a metaphor. And so that's a very powerful idea because it, it means that lots of different people's interpretation and thinking about and description of the same experience can be widely different in some way, but still be about the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so and the idea that and the the problem with with organized religion is that people start saying my my image of God is the real one and yours isn't and I'll, I'm going to kill you over it. I mean that seems so complete, completely nuts. I mean, how could somebody, if well, anybody has any idea about what God could possibly mean, how can they think that they could encapsulate it in an idea? I mean, I, I mean it's just nuts. I hear, right? you, I hear you, but I, you know, I I'm. I'm much more forgiving about that at this point in yeah. life than I was early on yeah, because, yeah. you know, we were living in small groups yeah. up until not very long ago. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and all the same stuff was happening. You were yeah. getting sick and yeah. dying and yeah. terrible things were happening. Yeah. And you're trying to get some control over your life. There was much more violence. There's a lot more danger. Yeah, a lot more danger. And people died early, and it was a scary business. And 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 different. If it's small groups, they'd all war with each other for resources. Or, right. You know. Right. And so your group, you know, thinks that you're going to avoid these calamities by <clears throat> sacrificing something to the guy that lives up on the mountain, and yeah. everybody decides you're going to do it. Yeah. And that all works fine. I mean, the effect of that, you know. I mean, there's a whole discussion about, um, I guess it's the placebo effect, which is, you know, when you decide strongly that you believe that the God lives up on the mountain and you have an intention to be whatever, a good person or whatever, those are very strong psychological forces that have been well documented. Placebos work. Right. And and so you're using this language and and all this stuff is going on. And then you're, you know... All of a sudden, people can ride horses and get over to the next village, and they're using different language. Yeah. It's like, hold on, yeah. you know, what's going on here? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 what I'm saying is that I think that all religious traditions can come out of the same reality. Well, they must. Yes. Yeah. The same reality, and and the deepest uh, people, the people who found them, usually have the deepest experience of that. But as they, uh, but as it becomes more codified. Then, then people people um, discover um, conflict rather than unity from it. They become less unified. They begin to they use it as a way to compete with each other, and so that's that's just kind of the loss of the loss of that reality in some way. And so that's what I I complain about with with and I and I think it's I think of it as the the concept of idolatry that idolatry. Isn't just um, misplacing statues for God, right? Be- you know, people don't try to eat pictures of food; they know better, right? Yeah. It's it's thinking it's your ideas. It's thinking that you you start worshiping your idea, and when you elevate that to that level, then that's the true meaning of idolatry. Idolatry, if you to avoid idolatry, you have to understand that. That what you're what you're talking about is beyond any 
conception. That that, that that level of life is beyond there, and therefore you don't own it, your ideas don't own it, nobody owns it, no, no, no metaphor can own it, nothing can own it, it's, it's, it's that. And it's, there, there's no good words for it. There's, nobody's come up with a good, everybody has a different word for it, like Brahman or, or Atman or, or, uh, uh, you know, Tao in, in Chinese, and, you know, there's, I mean, samsara. The, the problem as I see it yeah. is that, you know, we became really good at making words and abstractions make our life better. Yeah. So you get a piece of bronze and you get some fire and you bang this stuff around and you go kill bigger animals yeah. and pretty soon you're building Apple computers. Yeah. And this thing of the uh, concepts and ideas is brilliant yeah. for having to work less and putting yeah. food on the table. I mean, it really delivers the goods. Yeah. And, but then you go back to this area that we're talking about, which is, you know, you... You want to have that kind of primal experience of sacredness or, you know, reality that yeah. we're talking about. And some guy comes along and says, well, you believe these words and we're going to get you there. You know, it's going to give us 10%. You know, we need a little, you know, to fix the building, but let's go. <laughs> and and so it, we're, we're programmed to think that words are going to make it work. Yeah. When, in fact, what people were after and still are after is the experience. So when you and I started meditating 40 or 50 years ago, yeah. we all of a sudden had an experience we'd never had. You know, we, it wasn't a bunch of words. There's some words that came along with it yeah. that tried to describe it. But the actual physical experience of having your physiologies sorted out or feel better and have some happiness and some bliss in your yeah. life, yeah. we never experienced that, yeah. you know. We were brought up in the yeah. Protestant traditions and we lit the candles and... We were good boys, or at least we tried to be, and yeah. you know. But then, you know, all of a sudden, these Eastern traditions delivered the goods. It's really, you know, we're just coming out of this period of. I mean, maybe the, the way to say it is, you know, imagine what it's going to be like in a thousand years. Yeah, yeah. Well, here, here's the interesting thing about. Um, if you've had an experience of enlightenment, you have some notion of what the human nervous system is capable of experiencing. And so, uh, and there have been people on the planet, lots of them, there's a lot of tradition, a lot of writing about it, who, who have lived that experience. So it's there. It's not, it isn't something, it's not, in fact, my direct experience is that it was normal. Yeah, that it was the it was the normal way to be, the natural way, far more natural than, than 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 the stressful vision of life that one might have uh, without it. So, the question is, it seems that to solve any problems that we could that we might have as a species, we need to have that experience start to blossom. And more people and more human beings. You once said something. You said if somebody had asked you if you were enlightened, you'd have to, in all honesty, say yes and no. Correct. And it would be. It would. I'd be lying if I either if I said either thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I mean, um, I've got a long way to go, right? To 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 
get back to that deepest experience that I yes. had. But uh, interesting, on I went, I had a, uh, I went to a six month course, and during that six month months course, I, I, I got back there. In the sense that I watched, I I I I would I would meditate, you know, all morning, you know, usually in 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 the afternoons, and gradually I watched my physiology just settle down, and suddenly I could start to see my my thoughts, as the in Buddhist scriptures sometimes they say the thoughts are like clouds going across the sky. And that, and my 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 thought process had become qu- quiet enough, and my awareness had been quiet. My physiology was quiet enough that I could see, I could see the thoughts as things out there, and between the thoughts there was silence. And the the more that happened, the same experience of expansion would 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 appear. So when I would go out and walk. The you know there was a walk and talk every day. I'd go out and walk. I felt that my my you know I was the street. I was the environment. It wasn't just confined to my physiology. That was uh, it was it wasn't as powerful as that first experience, but it was the same thing. And I, so I I could see that that um, that that was there that that. One could one could see that all you had to do was to, you know, kind of let your physiology settle down, and you'd see it. I'm suggesting that that um, that that meditation, some form of meditation, as long as it's non-directive and not trying to, it, it lets. The secret of meditation is letting go, is just accepting, is being completely. Totally objective. Absolutely, absolutely saying, okay, whatever is there, that's there. I'm accepting it. I'm not going to try to change it. Um, I'm just going to, just going to observe, completely, totally observe it. In my, in my can experience. I, can I add something? Because yes. this is the point I should add it. In the training of psychedelic therapists, yeah. that point is hammered home over and over to the therapist. Yeah which is to convey to the person having the psychedelic experience yeah. to just go with it. Yeah. Don't fight it. Yeah. 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 The thing is, is that what a person needs to do is accept things exactly how they are. Right. Not how you want them to be, but how they actually are. And actually, and it seems to me that uh, meditation is good training for that and just, and just living a normal life. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm no longer trying to get enlightened. I'm not. I'm. I. I don't think about it. Yeah. I. I just. You know. I meditate because it makes me feel better physiologically. I get some deep rest. Some stresses relax. It clears up my my physiology. Some. You know. I like it that way. But it doesn't matter whether I'm meditating. What What I am is the same whether I'm meditating or on the trail or, or trying to you know fix my. Uh, you know, fix my uh, electric vehicle. <laughs> yeah. I've gotten everything apart, and I've I've dropped dropped the 
you know, something on down where I can't reach it and I have to figure out how to get it out. You know, uh, those kinds of things are fun to me. You know, yeah. I see all those things as, uh, and as I get older, I get uh, more forgetful, but I, I think it's funny. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see, uh, I'm not at war with myself in any way. I've kind of accepted my, my existence for how it is. Now I have a pretty pleasant life. So, and, and, uh, and maybe that would be different if I, if, if I didn't. I ended up in my 80th birthday, you know, up in the hospital having a colonoscopy with the, with the prediction that it was going to be colon cancer and I was going to have to have my bowel resected. So that was a, that was a pretty, uh, you know, uncomfortable kind of thing. But somehow, somehow, uh, I don't know what it was, but I, it didn't, it didn't upset me like I think it should. I was uncomfortable. I didn't like being able to, didn't like the, you know, the bed, having to, you know, the hospital bed, the sheets, the, you know, I wanted to be home in my comfortable bed and stuff like that. But, yeah, yeah. But, but I wasn't scared about it. I said, well, maybe this is it, you know, this body's going to drop, right? Yeah. This body's going to disappear and, and when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen, I don't know, but I know that every day, my 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 life is happier than it's ever been, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I, I I I I I don't feel I deserve it, right? I don't think I've earned it, right? <laughs> it's like that Chris Christopherson song. Tell me, tell me, Lord. What have I ever done to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known? You know, that, that kind of, that line, you know, yeah. kind of gets to me, you know, because yeah. I think, I get up every morning and I say, I don't des- deserve this. And then I think, well, I shouldn't be saying that because I'm rejecting what nature has provided for me. I don't want to do that either. You know, yeah. Yeah. You know? So, so and then I laugh about it. We've been phenomenally I, I, fortunate. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, you know, I'm not looking to gain enlightenment anymore. I'm not worrying about it. I'm not trying to do it. I'm just, I'm just living my life uh, as happily and fully as I can, and trying to make every decision that I make good and and life supporting and helpful to people as much as I can. Starting with with my my dear wife. Who's who who who, who I cause the most trouble for, <laughs> or I can help the best. You don't want to look outside if you're looking for happiness. You want to look inside. You want to you want to be able to accept. You want to be able to accept what you are and what you have and what you've got and whatever is going on in your life, and deal with it. Right? If you've got a problem, you got to face it. You got to deal with it at that time. Yeah. And that's the only way through, you know. That's the only way that you'll ever find happiness. You can't escape. You can't get out. You can't go anywhere else, you know. You're, wherever you go, there you are, is the old saying. I've started to look at problems as great um, opportunities for more enlightenment. To solve that problem is a great, you know, this is something, how, how am I going to... F- how do I fix this issue? How do I make this thing work? Right? 
What parts do I need? Who do I talk to? What's the solution for this to, to, you know, to make this thing happen? What's the, what's the right path to take to solve this problem? Fix it yourself? Uh, get somebody else to fix it? Because I like to fix things myself anytime I can. I get yeah. a lot of satisfaction out of it. Now, now how, to, how to get there, how to gain enlightenment, I don't, I don't know how to do that. I've, I've practiced, you know, Zen and TM and yoga and, and, and things like that. But, uh, I, I can't really look, you know, what you're finding out is, is what you always were, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's, 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 a it's, it's mysterious, you know? And, uh, I've, I've, I really have gotten a lot out of TM. It's a way to learn how to be. That 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 what's what's what you what you're what you're really doing is just finding a way to do nothing. To really do nothing, not try to make anything different happen, not try to have some some of this or that or gonna just just accept everything. Just be. It's a way to learn how to be, right? Then it teaches you how to do absolutely, completely, totally nothing, <laughs> which is very hard to do, strangely enough. Because I know, because I tried, tried, tried for years to do it. <laughs> no, I mean, and it was very hard. I failed at it. I will start now. Just close my eyes, sit there, yeah. and do nothing. Be. Just be. Just be. do nothing. Yeah, yeah. Just, just whatever's Sitting, here is here. The the. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and the green grass goes of its own. Right. A beautiful Zen poem. It right. describes it perfectly. But when I kind of fall into the place which I consider to be where I want to be, and, you know, I'm the most, I don't, I don't like the word deep so much, but, you know, just completely relaxed, then there's nothing watching it. All there is is a singular experience of being being and it seems to be in the area of my chest Hmm. you know even deeper you know further down in my body and there's just that experience of that that's it there's nobody watching it there's just that there's just that being you know it's that whole try if you try to do something to get there you're not going to get there sort of thing right right but yeah 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 I mean I think it's a it's it's basically teaches you how to how to um, how to take things as it comes. How to do how to, you know thy will be done. Same idea. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah. Uh, it teaches you how to be. You know, meditation. The purpose of meditation is to teach you how to be. And 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 and, and I see it as the most um, scientific possible point of view. I see it as a you know if you think about science as trying to be as completely accepting and objective about everything as possible without 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 putting your own biases you're supposed to you know look at things uh, you know as they are the notion of uh, finding something hidden it's all here there's nothing hidden it may not be as intense as it was during my psychedelic experiences but the wondrousness of being is ever present. There's nothing hidden that I got to go find. 
I might have to get some crap out of my nervous system yeah. so I settle down and appreciate it more. Or I may be completely motored up and not yeah. doing nothing but yeah. thinking. And I don't even notice anything around me that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. You know? Non-enlightenment is part of the story. Right? <laughs> thinking that you lost something. Yeah, yeah. Non-enlightenment. You know, we... Have a, you have a flashy, wonderful experience, and then then you come back to being more, quote, normal. Maybe you can't quite come all the way back to the same way you were before, but, but still, it's a, you know, but that, but that ordinary life that you have, you know, that, that, that not being fully enlightened yet, the sense that there could be something, uh, you know, deeper that you could, you could go, that's part of the story of life. So that concludes our podcast. Thanks for listening.